the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation. and my grandma both cut off the ends of the pot roast before they put it in the pan. They say it makes it juicier. They learned it from you. Why did you do it? She says, oh my lands, no, it doesn't make it juicier. I just never had a pot big enough to put it in. But it was just generation after generation. They were just doing stuff that they saw done, didn't have any real basis. They just did it because they saw it. And that's sometimes what happens in our faith traditions. We do things just because we see it, we hear it, we learn it, but it doesn't really have any biblical basis. And so we need to decide what we're going to retain whether or not it's biblical. Traditions aren't bad in and of themselves. They can be a nice way to honor our heritage as a family, country, or as a church. The problem begins when you start requiring or equating those traditions with righteousness. As Pastor Gary will emphasize in today's message, you need to be able to distinguish between man-made traditions and the laws God's given in scriptures. Ultimately, compliance with either one will always fall short. It's only the grace of Jesus Christ that saves you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. We're living in this time period when we are awaiting the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ is in two stages. The first stage is he only comes in the clouds, sounds the trumpet, calls the church up. And then the second part of his second coming is after the seven years of tribulation when he returns to the earth, the saints come with him and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What we need to concern ourselves with right now, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And we've been talking about how these seven letters are important for us to understand in three ways. Number one, that these churches are literal in existence. Each church was an actual church located in Turkey during the first century A.D., We're talking about, again, this particular area in the block right there in what is Asia Minor or today Turkey, just south of the Black Sea. And we have these seven cities that are each going to get a letter from Jesus. And they're listed here in Revelations 2 and 3. And starting with Ephesus, it goes in a clockwise direction. Uh, Ephesus gets the first letter, Laodicea gets the last. And so in addition to these being literal churches in existence, they also are spiritual in relevance. We read each of these letters with the idea that each church represents spiritual issues relevant to believers today. And we're going to make application every time we go through these, these letters. And then thirdly, it's historical in significance because when you look at the timeline of events and 
although not everything in the book of Revelation is in chronological order, a lot of it is. And so when you're looking at Revelation 2 and 3, you're heading into a time period where you're looking at the historical timeline of the church. When I say historical, it depends where you're standing in that timeline. For us, much of it is historical, but still because of where we are in the timeline, some of it is still prophetic. It's in the future. And when we speak about the historical timeline, this is what we're talking about. These, these seven churches are a picture of an aspect of church history. Because as Jesus begins to dictate these letters, he is pointing out different things that we now have the perspective looking back on church history to recognize, yeah, that, that represents a time period. That represents a time period. That represents a time period. So starting with the church of Ephesus, every event, every major event in church history serves to be a bookend of that particular time period. And so, for example, Ephesus, you have 33 AD where Jesus rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven, and the New Testament church was born. And 100 AD, roughly 100 AD, is when the apostolic age ended, the last of the apostles died. And so Ephesus represents that time period in church history. And Smyrna, the suffering church, 100 to 312 AD, Pergamos, 312 to 606 AD, and on down the timeline. So last week, we finished with Pergamos. We got through Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. And this is where Pergamos is located, and I just want to real briefly recap the issue of Pergamos that we find here uh, in chapter 2 between verses uh, 12 and 17. And so, just as a quick summary, again, each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself with a title. He makes a commendation. He, he commends them about something. He, he also complains about something. And uh, at least out of five out of the seven churches, two of them don't get any complaints from Jesus. And then he mentions a reward for those who are uh, true followers of him. And so when it related to Pergamos, 312 to 606 AD, it represents in church history the period of the state church, the state church. And so Jesus' title in that letter between verses 12 and 17 was him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He commends the fact that they have not renounced their faith despite the martyrdom of a guy named Antipas, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. His complaint, however, is that there's a marriage of the church and the world from the root word gamos. Gamos means marriage, polygamy, polygamos, um, monogamy, monogamos. So that's where we get our English from that root word in the Greek, gamos, pergamos. And his reward to this church is that they will receive some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. Now, again, I'm only recapping this because each of these time periods folds into the next. And so if you don't don't know a little bit about pergamos, we can't get into Thyatira, which is the next letter we're going to read here in a moment. So important events, 312 AD to 606 AD. What, what are these things that are happening 312 to 606 as we move into the next letter, which starts in verse 18, the church at Thyatira? In 312 AD, Constantine becomes emperor of Rome. There was a big power struggle over who would be the rightful emperor in Rome. And after uh, a few different battles, Constantine emerged in 312 AD as the emperor of Rome after a battle that he had successfully won. And um, as many of you know from history, he claims to have had a vision of a fiery cross, and, and he heard in Latin the words, go forth and conquer. 
And so Constantine took it upon himself that it must have been the Lord who appeared to him in this vision and, uh, and told him to go forth and, and conquer. And so he became a convert to Christianity. Remember, the Roman Empire was, was predominantly, almost exclusively polytheistic. And they had adapted their worship of many gods from the Greek Empire before them. And uh, they just renamed the Greek gods and added a few. And so Constantine, for him to come out as a, as a convert to Christianity was a very unusual thing in those days. And what he ends up doing is he elevates Christianity with favored status. Now it is, now Christians are protected. They're not persecuted like they were. I mean, by the thousands, Christians were being killed by Roman emperors before Constantine. And now they have protected favored status. And again, as we mentioned, though, that doesn't really make for a very uh, you know, heart relationship with Jesus when it just becomes a government, you know, favored uh, status, because then everybody just wants the government favored status and you don't really necessarily want Jesus. And so what begins to happen is the Roman influence of the Roman Empire begins to corrupt the, the purity of the Christian faith, and, and Christianity ends up looking more Roman than it does Christian. Now, again, this this in history is playing into, if you've ever wondered why is the Catholic Church referred to as the Roman Catholic Church, is because it has its roots in Rome. And it has its roots in the fact that after Constantine elevates Christianity to this favored status, uh, then it becomes a state religion in three, a, a, you know, a state religion in 380 AD by Emperor Theodosius I, who issues an edict uh, in, in Latin called De Fide Cat- Catholica, and basically he then declares Catholic Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire in this time period, 380 AD. And several practices began during this time period that became traditions of the Roman Catholic Church, such as during this time period between 312 and 606 AD, such as praying for the dead, okay, that's a Catholic doctrine, purgatory. It has no biblical basis. Okay, now I'm going to say some things tonight about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying it to, you know, in, I, I'm not about just trashing different faiths or religion. I'm just simply about pointing out what the Bible says about things and some of the practices that are inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. If you really believe that the Bible is the handbook for faith and practice, then you have to evaluate every religious tradition or religious practice through the grid of God's Word. That's important for everybody to do. I I shared with you on Sunday about my own faith tradition. Growing up Methodist taught that if you're sprinkled as an infant, you're good to go, and that was taught as water baptism. But despite the fact that John Wesley tried to make some good arguments in favor of infant baptism, at the end of the day, my own tradition conflicted with Scripture. When I began to look into the Bible to see, well, when are people actually water baptized? They're actually water baptized as a testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. When I was two weeks old, I could not make a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. So as wonderful as it was that I was sprinkled, that was really more of a dedication, despite what my tradition called it. That was not really water baptism. And so then I was baptized later. So there's going to be things in in your life, if you have any exposure to religious tradition or rituals of any kind... If you haven't been exposed to that and you're kind of coming into this fresh, then welcome to the family and you, you, know, you don't necessarily have some you know, baggage to unpack. But for those of us who've been exposed to religious tradition, religious rituals, 
you have to begin to examine those things in light of Scripture. Well, what does the Bible actually say about this? And, and then you have to begin to decide what you will practice that is scripturally based and then let go of those traditions that have no biblical basis. And that's hard sometimes because people have their whole identities wrapped up in their faith traditions. And those things can be rich in different ways, but if they're not biblical, why are you doing it? And that's what everybody has to ask himself or herself. Why do we do the things that we do? You know, I've shared this story before, but it, it comes to my mind as I talk about this kind of thing, how this little girl saw her mom as her mom was putting a pot roast into the pan. Her mom cut off both ends of the pot roast and then put the pot roast into the pan. And the little girl said to her mommy, why are you cutting off both ends of the pot roast? She says, I don't know. I just saw my mom do that uh, all my life. My mom would just cut off both ends of the pot roast, and then put the pot roast in and discard those ends that she cut off. I think it just makes it juicier. I don't really know. Why don't you go ask grandma? And so the little girl went to grandma. Grandma, mom cuts off both ends of the pot roast before she puts it in the pot. She said, you did that too. Why do you do that? She says, you know, frankly, I don't even know. It's just tradition. I saw my mom do that. She just cut off both ends of the pot roast before she put it in the pot. I think it makes it juicier. So why don't you go ask your great grandma? So the little girl went and asked her great grandma, great grandma, My mom and my grandma both cut off the ends of the pot roast before they put it in the pan. They say it makes it juicier. They learned it from you. Why did you do it? She says, oh, my lands. No, it doesn't make it juicier. I just never had a pot big enough to put it in. (laughs) But it was just generation after generation. They were just doing stuff that they saw done, didn't have any real basis. They just did it because they saw it. And that's sometimes what happens in our faith traditions. We do things just because we see it, we hear it, we learn it, but it doesn't really have any biblical basis. And so we need to decide what we're going to retain, whether or not it's biblical. During this time period, the traditions of the Catholic Church is just praying for the dead, the worship of saints and angels, the worship of Mary, and priests wearing robes and collars to separate themselves from the laity. That's what started to creep into the church. And so what ended up happening is that the, the church, the 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 Christian church started then taking on these religious rituals and traditions as the state-run church with its capital in Rome, and then it migrates into the Roman Catholic Church in 606 AD. Now, one of the things that Constantine did when he became emperor was he relocated the capital of the Roman Empire, to Byzantium. And he renamed Byzantium Constantinople. And that became the capital of the Roman Empire. And that became the seat of the state church. And then in in 606 AD, what began to happen is that things took on a life of their own as the Roman Catholic Church emerged. Before I recite some of that, let's take a look at where we're heading now, which is the Church of Thyatira. So we're moving from Pergamos now to Thyatira. And if you'll read with me here from chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, it finishes out chapter 2. Here's what it says. Jesus speaking here. He's dictating this to the church in Thyatira. Verse 18, And to the angel or pastor of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, 
and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels." As I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we come now to the church of Thyatira, which is nicknamed the idolatrous church. In my Bible, it has a subtitle, the corrupt church. You can pick whatever you want. It's not endearing, whichever one you choose. And um, the time period in church history that this literal church ends up reflecting is between 606 A.D. and 1517 A.D. Now, in 606, the Roman Catholic Church emerges and is ongoing today. And in 1517, you have the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther, a a Gregorian monk, uh, takes issue with uh, a lot of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, he has 95 problems with the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that is, in, in the Reformation uh, opinion, a combination of um, the Word of God and human man-made rituals that have been added to the Word of God and thus uh, have corrupted the simplicity uh, of Scripture and have made faith not just in Jesus alone, by faith alone, but has made it something more than that. It becomes a works-oriented religion. Whenever you add anything to the, the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, if you add any human component to that, you've just corrupted the, the message of the cross. And it's easy to happen um, when faith traditions and rituals start to take on a life of their own, which is what happens during this time period. And, and so... Uh, the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther's objection. So he, he nails his 95 thesis. He has 95 objections to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. He nails it on the, the, the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany in October the 31st, 1517. And thus the, the Protestant Reformation begins and the Protestant Church splits off from the Roman Catholic Church. We'll talk more about that next week. But, but let's focus on the beginning and, and the, the time period between 606 and fifteen. 17. First, a little bit about Thyatira. The only other reference to Thyatira, this city, outside of the book of Revelation is one reference in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 14. A woman by the name of Lydia, Paul's first convert to Christianity in the city of Philippi, a woman by the name of Lydia was from Thyatira. 
Her occupation, the Bible tells us in Acts 16, gives us a little bit of insight into the city's famous commodity because in Acts 16, it says that Lydia was a a dealer of purple cloth. Uh, This particular city, Thyatira, was known for its purple dye. It's what made this city famous. And it was derived from a shellfish that was indigenous to the area. By crushing this particular shellfish, it would make this purplish, reddish purplish dye. Today, that color is called Turkish red. Thyatira is situated about 30 miles halfway between Pergamos and Sardis. And Thyatira was first established as a Macedonian colony by Alexander the Great after the destruction of the Persian Empire. Today, Thyatira is the modern city called Akasar, and it has a population of about 50,000. The city was riddled with idolatry. That's going to be obviously the theme of this. This letter to this church, Jesus is calling out their affection for idols. And that's what Thyatira was known for. And so Jesus alludes to it in this letter by, by mentioning the name Jezebel. He calls out a woman named Jezebel. We'll talk about that in a moment. And Thyatira was known for having a temple for fortune tellers presided over by a powerful female oracle. So it could be that Jesus is referring to this particular woman or what Jezebel represents from Old Testament scriptures. There were more commercial guilds in Thyatira, a guild is kind of like a union, than in any other Roman province because they were such an industrialized city that was known for their great commercial trades. So they had guilds for dyers, um, wool workers, linen workers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, and bronzesmiths. They all had their own little union. And that's just what was happening in Thyatira. Now, during this particular time period, 606 to 1517, let's talk a little bit about the, the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church here. Um, here's a list of just a few things that um, were introduced into the church because of the Catholic traditions. The first thing I want you to note is that the title of Pope was given to Boniface III by Roman Emperor Phocas in 606 AD. That's why, for purposes of a timeline, we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church in 606 AD. Now, you you talk to a die-in-the-wool Roman Catholic, they will say, what are you talking about? The Roman Catholic Church was was way before 606 AD, you're centuries off, and Peter was our first pope. That's what they will tell you. But what we're talking about here is this, that in the first several centuries since Constantine and Theodosius made Christianity a state religion, there were different bishops who oversaw different churches in the regions of the Roman Empire. But something happened in 606 AD that made the Roman Catholic Church much like the modern Roman Catholic Church today. And that is that when Boniface III became bishop, Emperor Phocas wrote a letter to him making an imperial edict as the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. And Phocas said to Boniface III, I now deem you as the 
bishop, the universal bishop over all churches of the Roman Empire. And thus, he gave him the title Pope. And so that's why when we talk about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church, we're going to date it when we're 606 AD, although the Roman Catholics will say, no, it's first century because Peter was, was our first Pope. Thanks for listening today to Cornerstone Connection. This book of Revelation that you've been studying with Pastor Gary is one that many have studied and analyzed, tried and tried again to pinpoint on a timeline. When will Jesus come? When will these and times events take place? Have they already begun? There are many questions we don't have the answers to, and we won't until they happen. But there are some truths that we can hold on to. These events will happen. Jesus is returning, and he will defeat Satan once and for all. And all those who have made Jesus Lord in their life will be with him for eternity. What a wonderful time that will be. So where does that leave us? It's important to know what's coming so that you can prepare now and trust Jesus for what we don't know. We must give our lives to the Lord, and we need to give others the opportunity to do the same. We're so glad you tuned in for today's study in Revelation. If you'd like to explore more teachings from God's Word that Pastor Gary has shared, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. There you'll also learn more about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel. Come visit us if you're in the area. All the information you need is at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Join us next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know you're not alone. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.